Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love food and history. And normally I say that the other way around. Getting wacky. Anyway, (laughs) normally we start by talking about what we have been making and or baking. So what have you been up to? I have mostly just been working on existing projects because... I almost exclusively make large things, um, but I did buy Same. some graph paper Ooh. To, to make my own mosaic crochet ideas. That is fantastic. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and send you the one that I have been working on. Unfortunately. We record over Discord, and Discord decides any decent quality picture is too high quality. <laughs> oh, but yeah, that's I'm, cool. I'm pretty pleased with how the design came out. I tried to do like a Celtic knot one, but it turns out that's really hard. Designing so, repeating patterns is a lot harder than it looks, right? Yeah, especially because with mosaic crochet, you kind of want... Um, stripes Mm. at at least two sides just because it makes it a lot easier with having to switch the colors every couple of rows like i don't think i did a terrible job and i will probably make the pattern that i made oh that's pretty impressive one day i'm gonna figure out how to do a celtic knot mosaic crochet and then i will be unstoppable (laughs) an unstoppable monolith of design People on the Patreon server will have seen this design, and I'm very proud of it. Um, so what what have you been up to? I have had some adventures in learning to dye with plants. Um, so I... Did I tell you about my daffodil experiment? I don't think you mentioned daffodils. Okay, so I have recently got interested in um, in learning how to use plant dyes and I usually say plant dyes rather than natural dyes because natural dyes often includes like insects and stuff um, and I'm not going to go out and like collect a bunch of bugs and then crush them up. So. I mean I think at least in the case of cochineal you would probably have to travel to like Mexico or the southern states to do that. Yeah, I mean, I would also have to, like, or buy imported insects, I guess. Um, so, <laughs> so I'm sticking to the plants that I can get <laughs> um, around here. So I bought a bunch of daffodils, um, and it turns out you can use those to dye with, which I did not realise. So just as they're wilting, you can take them off the plants, soak them in water for a bit, um, and then heat them to make a dye. So I tried that one out. Um on a, a so you, of yarn. you didn't say which part of the plant is it the petals oh yeah sorry the flower heads um and it makes a kind of dark yellow color um so i tried that i over dyed um a skein of yarn i had that was kind of light beige and it went this kind of really hard to pin down like dark mustardy type color Oh, nice. Um, which is quite cool. So, 
had another go uh, a couple of days ago, um, this time with Ivy, which is one of the things, the few things that is around this time of year in the winter um, that you can use to dye with. And that produces like shades of yellow green. So yeah, it came out a bit, um, I'll, I'll post my efforts on Twitter when this goes out. Um, it, it went um, kind of a paler colour than I was going for, but I kind of like it. Like, it's quite subtle. Um, it's a, a kind of light yellow-green colour, which is really nice. And I think my mordanting worked as well. So for a lot of plant dyes, you have to use a, a, a chemical that will fix the dye so that it won't fade or wash out. Unless um, you're not using the traditional urine. I am not. Although the book that I have on, um, on plant dyeing does tell you how to do that if you wanted to. <laughs> well, it's good to know it's an option. Yeah. Um, so I'm not doing that right now. I, To be honest, I might do it one day just for the curiosity. <laughs> Is that weird? No, I mean, it's... It's fun to experiment. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, people have definitely done much smellier things in the name of experimentation. I mean, it could be worse. I could be a parasitologist, like intentionally infecting myself with things to get them past customs. True. Anyway, I've managed to produce um, a couple of different shades. Um, my mordanting seemed to have worked, so I'm pretty happy with that. I'm excited to move on to, I've got a bunch of apple prunings that are soaking in water ready for dyeing. So, Ooh. yeah. You'll have to keep me posted. I will do, yeah. Apparently apple bark creates orange, so I'm excited for that one. Um, what is today's topic? Well, since this and the next episode will be coming out in March, which is between Valentine's Day and Easter, this is the first of a two-part on chocolate. Yeah. So that sounded a lot like I was springing this two part on Hazel, but don't worry, we did discuss <laughs> it in advance. <laughs> I was I was trying to do a fun, you know, presenting thing. Like, so what's today's topic? Um, well, I, I, I was going to tell you that I discovered how to make a drink that tastes of Maltesers, and then go from there. I'll take that. What you do is you, you make a cup of Ovaltine, but then you dissolve uh -huh. into it just like a teaspoon of instant hot chocolate. Ooh. And then it tastes like a Malteser. That's fantastic. I might have to do that. What is the difference between Ovaltine and the hot chocolate? Is Ov um, Ovaltine not cocoa, is it? It has cocoa in it as like a flavouring, um, okay. but it's mostly malt. Is like its oh. primary thing is malted barley. Okay, that makes more sense. And in most places, but not the UK, it contains eggs. Huh. Um, 
yeah, I I learned about the history of Ovaltine while re while researching today's episode, which is drinking chocolate. Um, because I thought I thought it was a cocoa thing, but it just mm -hmm. has cocoa in it. Yeah, I thought it was because Ovaltine is always the smell of Ovaltine is quite like comforting to me because my granddad used to drink it a lot. Um, oh yeah, it's know. it's very much seen as like an old people drink in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, guess kind of along with cocoa there's more people tend to drink hot chocolate than cocoa i feel i mean the terms are kind of interchangeable i think yeah i'm not now that you mention it i don't really know what the difference i guess hot chocolate often includes milk powder doesn't it they, they are basically the same thing but basically hot chocolate traditionally is made from melting chocolate into milk ah okay okay I'm, I'm gonna shut up and let you tell me the full history before i start asking questions out of order it's fine um okay so i think most people probably know that the first people to drink chocolate were um South and Central American civilizations, particularly the Maya. I have heard that one, yeah. Um, so they had a drink called Chocolatl, which is cocoa, spices, sometimes vanilla, and also sometimes cornmeal, which acts as a, as a thickener. Um, which I had never heard about cornmeal being in it before, but I guess it makes sense because it's nicer when it's thick. Yeah, yeah, um, no, definitely. And like cornstarch is a thing. Yeah. So that's that, delicious. So that was, you know, all levels of society, there's evidence that they drank it. Um, with some people even being buried with the spouted vessels, which I'm not going to try and pronounce the name of because I couldn't find a pronunciation guide, um, which you would pour it between these two spouted vessels um which is vaguely kind of like if you made a teapot out of a gourd kind of looking thing okay. um in order to mix it and get it frothy um and you could drink that hot or cold which i mean i i have tried it at the chocolate museum in york they give you like a little <gasps> shot of it oh wow it's quite nice it's very bitter okay like it, it in no way tastes like hot chocolate oh okay i Actually, that makes sense if there's no sugar in it. It it is nice, but I say that as someone that really likes dark chocolate. Um. So then you get the Aztec taking over, um, and Montezuma the second started actually taking cocoa from conquered nations as a kind of um from conquered nations as a kind of tribute and that's when it became this um upper class drink okay although interestingly apparently they had like pressed blocks of ground cocoa beans as a part of soldiers rations because it was that important wow so you could make hot cocoa on the go <laughs> i mean to be honest that does sound pretty necessary if you're 
camping out in some uncomfortable situations like at least you've got your hot cocoa well yeah apparently people have just been camping out with hot cocoa since yeah about 700 um common era and there's some people think that it was also used as an aphrodisiac which i will get into chocolate as an aphrodisiac okay Um, that could have just been a smear thing being like oh they're so horny and we civilized europeans need to stop them being so horny all the time I have heard about chocolate being an aphrodisiac, but it seems like around that kind of time, most everything was an aphrodisiac. That is a thing that we've learned during this show, isn't it? Yeah, like, especially if it's something that has recently been quote-unquote discovered from foreign parts, and everyone's like, oh, it's an aphrodisiac, because it's exotic. Oh yeah, like, there's... I was going to get into it later. But, um, <laughs> so there's an order of Carmelite nuns, um, based in, initially in Mexico City and then elsewhere, who from 1616 to 1949, as a part of their vows, swore off chocolate. I vow not to drink chocolate, nor to be the cause of another one drinking it. (laughs) So you could legitimately get thrown out of this order of nuns for, like, persuading your friend to have a bit of chocolate. Apparently. (laughs) But, like, that's the level of taboo around it. (laughs) I think think that's the vow that I couldn't handle. Like, mm, the others maybe, like... Like poverty, chastity, chocolate. probably okay. Yeah, not I might chocolate. Be able to deal with that. I, I can't handle like never again having chocolate. Yeah, I, f- I feel like considering this this started being their vow in sixteen sixteen, like it wasn't as appealing at that point. <laughs> um, so Cortez takes drinking chocolate to Spain in 1528 and it takes a while to take off because it's this bitter spicy foreign drink mm-hmm. and then they solve both of th- both of the flavor problems at once by replacing the chili with sugar ah. which of course keeps it as an elite thing this side of the atlantic but also mm-hmm. makes it much more palatable to europeans to the point that it ended up being seen as this great medicinal thing. Like, there's an entry from Samuel Pepys' diary from the 24th of April, 1661, where he mentions hot chocolate as a hangover cure. (laughs) And there were also people using it for, like, jaundice and stomachache and just basically anything in your core. They'd just be Mm -hmm. like, "Have, have you tried chocolate? I mean, to be fair, hot chocolate does often make you feel better. I mean, it does. That's <laughs> probably more of like a dopamine thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, chocolate does contain things that... Yeah. Um, 
phenylethylamine, um, which is a um, a chemical that makes you feel good. It makes you feel happy and just generally a sense of I hate the word, but a sense of wellness. Okay. Which is why chocolate is so nice. Aww. It has the happy chemical in. It has happy chemicals. Um, apparently also contains tryptophan, which is needed for making serotonin. So just all around a ha- happy, happy juice is hot chocolate. <laughs> um, although apparently in Peeps' time, it also potentially contained egg. Okay. Which... I mean, I guess we have established that Ovaltine has egg in it, so maybe not as weird as it first sounds. Hmm. Um, I feel about that. But there is a reference in the 1750s to one um, aristocrat having hot chocolate infused with fresh jasmine flowers, amber, musk, vanilla, and ambergris. Amber. I mean, I I don't know what that would taste like, but it's certainly expensive. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the point. But, like, I didn't know amber had a taste. I mean, people eat gold. I suspect it's a conspicuous consumption thing more than anything else. That's true, but I feel like maybe you shouldn't eat the thousand-year-old tree sap. I like how you're objecting to the amber, but not the ambergris. <laughs> That's because I don't know exactly what ambergris is. Um, I just know it's fancy. So, something gets lodged in a whale's digestive tract and irritates it. And then the okay. whale produces this substance that kind of coats it, and then the whale throws it up. Oh no. Oh no. Like, the closest equivalent would probably be like a gallstone or something. (laughs) We're absolutely doing an episode on ambergris because I have found out things about that stuff. It's like a whale hairball. Yeah. And people, what, wear it? Yeah, it's, it's... It was a... Primary ingredient in perfume for a long time. Okay. And okay. Yeah. I've, you learn things on this podcast. I have learned many terrible things about ambergris. It's so disgusting. <laughs> I'm going to do an episode on it at some point. Um, why? Why are we like this? <laughs> humans will just look at any weird thing and go, "Is anyone going to eat that?" <laughs> And that's why we're the only species that has invented cooking. (laughs) But yeah, so by the late 1700s, there's about 700 cocoa houses in just London. Wow. So it, it catches on pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, I think we briefly touched on cocoa houses in the um, Temperance episode, mm-hmm. but they were very much touted as an alternative 
to pubs. There were this social space where there isn't alcohol, because by this point there is people starting to go, hey, drinking too much is really bad. It's like a social problem and we need to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Which is why Quakers get involved in the cocoa business, which I'm sure will come up more when we do your I... episode with, with chocolate bars. Yes, indeed. And I will absolutely be mentioning it in my local larder today, actually. Um, but yeah, so a lot of the um, bright minds of the Enlightenment Age of London were, were known for meeting in cocoa houses or coffee houses, right? Yeah, it was... Yeah, it's it's basically just the place that you go if you're not like dirt poor is you go to a coffee house or a cocoa house. Hear the news. Mm. Maybe take in an informative lecture even. Oh. Well, because like I say, because cocoa houses were central to this movement away from people going to the pub all the time. Um, which, I mean, we can debate how successful that was till the cows come home. <laughs> um, but yeah, a lot. some of them, especially the ones run by Quakers and Methodists, were places for improving oneself. And there'd be, you know, lectures, sing songs, um, obviously some um, religious lectures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember this. some of this, I think, because they, they were basically like, okay, well, if we want people to come here and not the pub, we have to make it fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, at this point, you also have, back in Spain, who were obviously the first Europeans to get hold of it, um, experimenting with putting things like um, cinnamon, black pepper... Um, anise and sesame into hot cocoa to try and replicate that original flavour because importing spices from the um, East Indies was I guess cheaper than the West Indies for a while so I guess it was easier to get spices from the East Indies than the West Indies because there was an established trade route rather than having to sail all the way there and back with a shipment. But I I do find it interesting that uh, there was this attempt to recreate the flavours after the flavours had changed. Yeah, I mean, you would have thought that people would be wanting to put all the fancy spices in it from the start, I guess. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thing about how tastes really change over time. Because, I mean, Mm. because we're talking sort of late 17, early 1800s at this point, where we're starting to get people in Europe actually putting spicy things in the food as opposed to just a little bit of a spice. Mm -hmm. And um, looking at sort of curries and things like that so I, I wonder if it's kind of tastes as a whole moving slightly more towards spice I guess that makes sense with it 
like becoming more available like more variety of different spices mm. saying about the west indies though um so in the early 1800s that's when people in britain start putting milk in their cocoa i guess starting to make that transition from hot cocoa to hot chocolate okay um which was an idea introduced from the west indies by a missionary who'd been there i couldn't find any information on exactly who'd started doing it um statistically it was probably someone's enslaved cook let's be honest um well you combine that adding milk into it with in 1828 um Conrad Johan van Houten in the Netherlands inventing cocoa powder, which means it's easier to dissolve in, into milk, it's easier to store and to transport all of that stuff. You get this sort of boom in people having hot cocoa slash hot chocolate in their homes, and it becomes a really popular post-dinner drink. Oh... Like kind of the way that you might have a coffee after a meal now is equally likely if you could afford it, you'd have the hot chocolate. I mean, that sounds great, especially as I, I don't like coffee, so. Yeah, this this winter I have been doing that just by coincidence. Having quite a lot of evening hot chocolates and it's just been really nice. Mm. Um, Interestingly, though, starting to put milk in it you kind of get almost going back to the beginning and getting it frothy so obviously when you heat milk it gets frothy and then now you have um it's called velvetizing which is what they do in like starbucks when they make it with froth milk right yeah with the steam steam into yeah yeah frothy hot chocolate is amazing but a comp but you've got that sort of bringing back frothy hot chocolate and also chili chocolate as a thing in the last couple of decades becoming really popular. Oh, yes, We're almost I'm going so... full circle. <laughs> I'm so glad back that that's having the spicy, because... frothy cocoa. Chili and chocolate is delicious. Um, I will fight anyone who says otherwise. Oh, it is. I had... When I lived in Warrington, there was this ice cream place we used to go to, and they had the thickest, like, proper gelato chili chocolate ice cream. Mm. This whole episode is just making me want chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. That is a brief history of hot cocoa slash hot chocolate. And now I want some hot chocolate. <laughs> I think yeah it is interesting that it like it's totally come back round and now a lot of chocolate is marketed on the the whole like tastes like the original chocolate kind of thing. Oh yeah like I think there is a chocolate brand called Moctezuma. Yeah. Which like I'm I'm not sure how he would have felt about that. <laughs> but I mean Colonialism is a whole trip, which I feel is one of the central theses of this show. 
pretty much. Um, it, I guess it turns out that a lot of food history is also related to the history of, of people and their movements around the world. So before we get on to local larder, which I believe is also chocolatey in keeping with the theme, um, if you want to say hi or suggest an episode, you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at breadandthread, where you can find teasers for upcoming episodes and uh, occasional things that we're doing or pictures that are related to the episodes. And if you want to support us, um, maybe help us get some of that fancy Moctezuma chocolate. Um, we do have a Patreon. Um, it's just patreon.com slash breadandthread. We have a Patreon-exclusive Discord server, uh, Patreon-exclusive recipes. And if you subscribe at the $10 a month or above level, we will make a bonus episode just for you. Hello, I'm Mod, I'm Mod Paper from Probably Bad RPG Ideas, and we have a podcast. If you'd like to hear RPG advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available on pretty much every podcatcher. And remember to have a probably bad day. Maybe we should just do a chocolate review podcast. And get people to send us chocolate. Like, get, you know... We should set up a PO box where people can send us chocolate from around the world. (laughs) Send us free chocolate, we'll review your company. But in the meantime, what what are you (laughs) teaching us about, Hazel? So speaking of... um, I'm going to talk about the chocolate orange, which I'm sure is a familiar object mm. to many people around the world. That's what um, Christmas tastes like. Oh, yeah, boy. I was one of the apparently one tenth of people in Britain um, that had. Oh, was it? No, I think it was like nine tenths. Okay, I cannot remember that fact, but I will go back to it because I have written it down somewhere. But apparently, um, like a lot, a lot of people were having the chocolate orange in their Christmas stocking at one point. And one of them was me. So this, um, also, this is going to involve a lot of talking about uh, Terry's because they are the makers of chocolate orange. So this, this is not Sponcon, I just... I just want to talk about chocolate oranges. <laughs> Not Terry's, it's mine. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so but... That was just a joke for the Brits. <laughs> um, I might mention the adverts, actually, because that's one of the main reasons that the chocolate orange is so popular still today. Um, so... The, the chocolate orange, that delicious, um, orangey tasting chocolate that comes in the, the orange foil wrapper and inside it's shaped like an orange with different segments that you have to like, or not peel off, but you have to try and get them apart. Um, and normally you like bash it on something or someone in order to get the segments to come out. I've never done it on someone. <laughs> oh yeah, that was uh, family Christmas. 
it wasn't Christmas unless someone got whacked on the head by a chocolate orange. Maybe the problem is having a sister so much younger, I would have got in trouble if I'd whacked her with it. <laughs> Maybe you can make up last time. Emma. I did I did discover though once um, when I got one just for me because I was sad um, that if you just bite it like an apple the pieces do separate that way oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> new chocolate orange law um, <laughs> so the makers of the chocolate orange uh, are Terry's of York um, now, Liz and I both studied in the city of York. Uh, that's York, Yorkshire, England, and not New York. I'm talking the OG about York. Old York, yep. Um, which is considerably smaller than New York. <laughs> uh, it's a very, very beautiful city, lots of very old buildings. Um, and also well known for its chocolate heritage, because... A lot of uh, originally the UK's and then, um, as they started exporting more famous brands around the world, uh, were made in York up, up until the early 20th century. Um, and in fact, there is a Nestle factory still there today, which used to be a Roundtree factory, but Roundtree's is now owned by Nestle. And there's a lot of things I could say about Nestle. Um, but I'm not going to go into that too much on this podcast because, because then it we really... don't swear. <laughs> yeah, and that, then it really will become like entirely politics and no food. So, <laughs> um... but anyway, the point is that York has a big history with chocolate, and it was the biggest employer in the city during the late 9th and for much of the 19th and much of the 20th centuries and Terry's was one of these factories in fact at one point uh, I believe Terry's and Roundtree's the two biggest factories employed half the working people of uh, half the working population of York um, in in the mid 1970s so right up to then so this was big business and uh, Terry's started off as a small company, um, actually in the late 18th century, although the Terry name wasn't involved with it then. Um, in the 19th century, um, so in the 1820s, um, Joseph Terry got involved with the business and started making more like chocolate-based products. And... That continued on into the early 20th century. They were one of the biggest chocolate manufacturers in Britain. And that's when they started to, um, to I was going to say embolden. That's not really the word, to expand their product <laughs> line. <laughs> um, after They embiggened uh, it. <laughs> they did indeed embiggen it. <laughs> with the building of their new factory in York. So the Terry's factory in York is actually right next to the race course where I used to work on the champagne bar. We both did. Um, yeah, oh, I forgot you worked there too. Um, yeah, so on race days... I was normally I... on the Pims bar. <laughs> oh gosh, the Pims bar. Um, yeah. Yeah, basically, we, we both worked selling incredibly overpriced drinks to people at the race course. <laughs> so, 
Uh, the Terry's factory, which um, is now no longer open, um, and at that point was kind of a little bit derelict. The clock was stopped at six o'clock. So I would be working and see this clock at six o'clock and be like, oh, it's nearly time to go home. Awesome. And then realize that that clock has been stopped there for like 20 years and it's actually half past two <laughs> and I've still got a lot of work to do. Um, but the Terry's factory is this amazing building. Um, I think it's so fancy flats now. It is, yeah. It's been um, redone as as like housing, which um, I mean, I guess it's good that they didn't just completely tear the whole thing down. Um, so the the story of the chocolate orange actually begins um, in 1932, is when it was first produced. But did you know that the first Perry's flavoured chocolate product, the forerunner to the chocolate orange, was in fact, in 1926, the chocolate apple. F feel free See, to be amazed. Yeah. So the thing is, like, I did know this because Nick and I went to the York Chocolate Museum Ah, but it excellent. still boggles me. <laughs> They're like, oh, let's make this segmented flavoured chocolate thing. What's a strongly flavoured thing with segments? Apples. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you would think, despite chocolate and orange being two flavours that have been used together for quite a long time, um, it, it, it apparently wasn't the obvious choice. <laughs> and I guess was... the question is, like, how much were they used together before the invention of the chocolate orange? I mean, I suppose, yeah, that would be an interesting thing to find out. But apparently the one that came to mind was apple. And so the, the original product was apple-flavoured chocolate that was in the shape of an apple, also in segments. Um, so yeah, the chocolate apple was actually not discontinued until 1954. Wow. So, I'm going to have to ask my grandparents um, if any of them had a chocolate apple, what it tasted like. Um, it was actually discontinued in order to focus on production of the chocolate orange, which was the much more wildly popular product. I wonder why. I, mean, I feel like that was the right call. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Um, <laughs> in fact... <laughs> Due to the extreme success of the chocolate orange, they were inspired in 1979 to bring out the chocolate lemon, which was withdrawn three years later because apparently people were just like, nah. I See, don't like this one. Chocolate, like, lemon and white chocolate, at least, is a really nice thing, but I'm guessing it wasn't white chocolate. No, it was just lemon flavoured chocolate. Shaped okay. like a lemon. Um, yeah. One didn't do too well, apparently. <laughs> I wonder if they're collectibles now, like, given they were only oh, around for three years. I bet there's one on eBay somewhere that's all like under the wrapper covered in all that white stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mint condition chocolate lemon. <laughs> if anyone's got a chocolate lemon, please let us know. <laughs> 
So the chocolate orange is probably Terry's most famous product. I don't I was wondering if it was a thing before Terry's, but it seems like they are the ones that created it. And it's the Terry's chocolate orange is is the one that everybody knows. Um, and uh, that is because um, in the 1960s, when the business became uh, that, that was when the business was first acquired by another company. Um, and they put a lot into advertising. And, and particularly into advertising the chocolate orange. So Terry's hadn't really done a lot of advertising before that. They just relied on the whole like reputation, word of mouth thing. And they were doing pretty well out of it. But uh, the sales of chocolate orange did actually go massively up um, in the 1960s, 70s uh, due to this advertising. So one of the most memorable adverts is uh, Dawn French was the the face of Terry's Chocolate yes. Orange for quite a while. Um, and the, yeah, some of the adverts are fantastic. Like the slogan, don't tap it, whack it, came from there. Um, and also it's not Terry's, it's mine. So the adverts would feature like Dawn French trying to get her chocolate orange back or protect the chocolate orange from other people. <laughs> I, I do recommend if you're listening to this watch some of those adverts they're, yeah, they're very fun I would recommend um, and it was these kind of fun adverts um, that uh, that kind of made it a household name really because um, it was already popular but it, it just yeah it got to the point where like Everyone and their mum had one in their Christmas stocking, like around Christmas time, sales went up loads and loads. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, Terry's is no longer a family business. Um, there was a Terry on the board of directors of whatever company it was owned by until the 1980s, I believe. Um, and now it's just owned by, it was owned by Kraft. Um, the oh, yeah, American Cadbury's as well, I think. Yeah, so they also bought Cadbury. Um, but uh, Kraft are the ones that moved production to continental Europe. So the chocolate orange is no longer produced in York. Terry's factory was closed in 2005, um, which actually is is still quite a long time for it to be going. Yeah, um, that's, but it, that's relatively recent in terms of like British factories closing. Um, yeah. Uh, so the chocolate orange is now manufactured in France, I think. Which is going to be interesting uh, to see how that unfolds with Brexit. Oh, God, don't. I hadn't even thought about expensive chocolate orange. <laughs> Maybe the chocolate orange supply might be limited. <laughs> there I was worried about free movement and workers' rights. Uh, what about I know. the chocolate orange? <laughs> Don't worry about those. The chocolate orange. <laughs> um, I mean, everyone buys chocolate orange when it's on sale for a pound, right? No one has oh, no yeah. pays full price. And then you make hot chocolate with it. Oh my gosh, that's genius. Have you not done that? No. Do it. Thank me later. Gonna. <laughs> I will. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I have, in fact, and this is a brag, have seen the last ever Terry's Chocolate Orange that was made in the factory in York. Is is it in a museum? 
Uh, sort of. It's in Goddard's House, which is a National Trust property in York. That is the home of the Terry family from the 1930s. And it's actually a really nice house. Um, like it's a nice, you know, good old National Trust day out. I like how you um, sound surprised that it's a nice house. <laughs> These people that owned several factories in an international business, they had a really nice house. I mean, yeah, they were also definitely making banks. So like it's a nice house. <laughs> um, but it also contains the last chocolate orange made in York. You know, if you wanted to make a pilgrimage to the to the uh, spiritual home of the chocolate orange, uh, there you go. Amazing. <laughs> but now they're manufactured in France, and you can get them pretty much all over the world at this point. I think um, they're distributed in in a lot of other countries. Um, not even in like the international foods aisle. A lot of places just have them like just there. Um, so they're they're still doing pretty well for themselves. Although it is true, there is less chocolate than there used to be in the chocolate orange. Yeah, there's less chocolate than there used to be in everything. Yeah, but the way that they did it with the chocolate orange is particularly insidious. Um, so this. I believe this happened in the early 2000s and it now contains less chocolate but is not smaller because the way they did it is they increased like the air gaps between the segments so it looks the same size but there's like 20 grams less chocolate in it. Fiends! Mm, I know right? No. <sighs> One day I'll get over it. <laughs> well, as long as they keep making the dark chocolate one with the pop rocks in, I'll forgive them. Yeah, the popping candy ones are great. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's a a potted history of chocolate orange, as it were. Um, oh, there is there is one fantastic bit um, about the rivalry between Terry's Round Trees, which was the other big chocolate factory um, and like confectionery company in York. And you might know the name Roundtree from the, uh, I believe it was 1901. Uh, was that Booth? Okay, from one of the very early 19th century uh, surveys of poverty and living conditions in the United Kingdom. So there were two famous ones, Booth and Roundtree. Booth's survey was in London. Roundtree's was a survey of uh, poverty and living conditions in the city of York. Um, and these were kind of a big deal because they, and, and I know everyone listening to this is going to go, well, obviously, um, but the findings of these surveys were that uh, a lot of people were living below the poverty line and that it wasn't their fault. And <laughs> a lot of people the time in the early 19th century read these surveys and went oh my god these people are living in poverty through no fault of their own we must do something the deserving um, poor yes <laughs> which was kind of a big deal at the time because uh, a lot of the attitude before that was that poor people had it coming 
which unfortunately is still a prevalent attitude today. Mm. Um, so again, <laughs> I won't go into that too much because this will become a politics podcast. Um, but there was kind of a rivalry between Terry's and Roundtree's factory. And in the 1920s, the Terry's factory was not in its present site near the race course. Um, it, it was uh, closer to the city itself. And uh, Joseph, uh, not Joseph Roundtree, um, Roundtree of the time bought a piece of land next to the Terry's factory and graciously gifted it to the city of York as a public park. And that is Roundtree Park in York. Which is a very I remember nice park. that park. That's yeah. a great park. It is a great park. It's really, really nice. If you're ever, ever visiting York, go to Roundtree Park. It's awesome. That's where the um, ice cream boat goes. Yeah, there is an ice cream boat. Uh, and so there's this beautiful park called Roundtree Park that was right next to the old Terry's factory. Uh, and in the 1920s, um, Terry's had to build this other factory in a different place because someone had bought the land next to their factory and they were unable to expand. <laughs> Genius. So, yeah, there you go. Some 1920s one-upmanship in the... Uh, it's, it's all hotting up in the confectionery fandom. <laughs> so, yeah, next time you get a chocolate orange, just um, just think of those uh, short-lived predecessors. The chocolate apple and the chocolate lemon. So... Thank you for listening. As we said, we do have a, a Patreon. Um, there's bread and thread. But buy us some chocolate oranges. Chocolate lemons. We would be really impressed by that. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd eat it, but it'd be cool to would. see it. I would definitely eat it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so thank you for listening, and we will be back in a couple of weeks for... Solid chocolate. <laughs>